You know, I grew up imagining God to be a white man. And so I, I have intentionally pushed back against that, even when I write, is to find ways to avoid the he pronoun. <laughs> In Christian denominations that affirm women in all roles of leadership, they still are not represented 50-50. <laughs> what you can spit out isn't what matters. It is how you live consistently day in and day out. Welcome back, Immigrantly listeners. I am so excited to bring you season 11. I know that we've been doing this for 10 seasons, but things still feel so fresh. It's because we have grown so much as a podcast. Our conversations just keep getting better. And I am so excited to share what we have planned for this season. For season 11, we are tackling all things religion and spirituality. We want to break down religion past its typical institutional context. What does it mean to know God? How do people incorporate spirituality into their everyday lives? These are some of the questions we will be asking. So we are kicking off our season with Christianity. As the long-standing dominant religion, it's impossible to deny the Christian influences on American culture. What's fascinating about Christianity is that it's so vast. I hear there are over 200 Christian denominations in America alone. One person's definition of Christian can be extremely different from another's. But that's the thing about religion, right? It's all about interpretation. And the existence of the many different types of interpretations is just a direct reflection of the diversity that exists in our society. Today, we are bringing on Kathy Gung to hear a progressive take on Christianity. Kathy is a writer, speaker, yoga teacher, and a lover of Jesus. She is also an activist who utilizes her faith to empower people to use their voices. Thank you so much for being here, Kathy. I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm really excited that we are doing this. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Sadia. So right off the bat, I was listening to your interviews, and I discovered that you and I agree on a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Our theme for season 11 is religion spirituality and American identity. We are trying to dig deep into that intersectionality. And you're a practicing Christian. What is your interpretation of God and how does your relationship with God manifest in your everyday life? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I grew up imagining God to be a white man. <laughs> and yeah, I think it was, you know, the language around um, Heavenly Father. 
And even mm. though my earthly father is not a white man, I think there was something around the way in Sunday school that was taught and imagined or described. I always imagined kind of this older, white, bearded man. And that has changed, thankfully, over the years and decades. Um, and really believing God is neither male nor female, and that God, as God creator, doesn't take human form as God, right? So in the Christian faith, God takes human form in Jesus. Yes, I agree with that. But God as God, for me, no longer takes that form. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has been, for me, that biggest shift in the last few years, really embracing that and understanding that. And so in my day-to-day -day experience and expression and understanding of God is that there is a presence of the creator in all living things and even indirectly in all things that God the creator has created us human beings mm -hmm. and we then in turn mimic that in the creation of. So I'm particularly fond of artists because I think we do that act of creating in a mirrored expression of who God is as a creator. I was actually going to ask you about whether or not you subscribe to the idea of God being a him, because I grew up with the same notion. And now I, in a way, struggle with it, because sometimes I feel, am I inherently subscribing to the patriarchy mm. by ascribing gender to God, right? And you've talked about gender roles in religion. I was listening to one of your sermons from 2018, where you talk about the role of women in religion, especially women of color, mm -hmm. which was incredible. And I will let you talk a little bit about that because I'm sure I won't be able to do justice the way you'll describe it. Well, you know, I think women of color across the board have been pushed into the margins, period, right? Women, period, mm -hmm. but then specifically women of color. And then my context here in the U.S. is very much even in Christian denominations that affirm women and mm -hmm. affirm women in all roles of leadership they still are not represented 50-50. Right. <laughs> and so I hmm. think um, it's a huge mistake on the part of the Christian faith and in the practices of Christianity that I think so many images and the realities are that men are leading, which, again, I think leads into that understanding of God being a man. And like I yeah. said earlier, I think that is what I've grown up with. And it's very easy to refer to God as he all of the time, all of the time. And so that's something <laughs> that I've had to kind of intentionally correct myself 
because I don't want to believe that God is a man. I don't believe God is gendered, yeah. and yet there, the language has always been there. And so I think for me as a Korean-American woman, immigrant, there always has been a level of taking that in mm. and assuming that I can't fully understand God if God is truly a man, right? God the Father, God He. Um, and so I, I have intentionally pushed back against that, even when I yeah. write, is to find ways to avoid the he pronoun <laughs> around mm. God. Because I think it just reemphasizes that false belief that God is a man. How do you refer to God then? Just God? Uh, just God, yes. Just God, um, God the creator, using other uh. names that are also found in the Bible that should not be gendered, right? So there's God the healer. Absolutely, um, yeah. And even that practice forces me to question whether or not I believe all of those understanding of God is not gendered, right? So like God the creator, that has, even in that naming, forces me to understand or check my beliefs and my understanding of who creates, who mm. can create. Yeah, that's so interesting. So Kathy, you are at the intersection of a lot of identities, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're a person of color. You came to the U.S. as an infant you have a cultural and ethnic identity which is different from the dominant population in the U.S., yet you subscribe to religion that the dominant population follows, right? Yes. Uh, for me, as a practicing Muslim, I am at the intersection just like you, but I practice a religion which unfortunately is the most villainized religion in the West. Correct. Even in America. Mm -hmm. How do you see yourself navigating that space with certain vulnerabilities and yet certain advantages at the same time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are conversations happening now on, you know, Facebook pages and community Facebook pages. Um, was it this week or last week? There was a Muslim family in Canada run over. It was this week. Was it this week? And um, and a Muslim friend on Facebook posted about it. And so where I see having to question and leverage my privilege in being mm. a Christian in the United States is how do I represent my Muslim friends? How do mm. I communicate their community's concerns, valid concerns, and uh, fight and push against Christianity and Christians, I know, demonizing and misrepresenting the Muslim faith. So mm. that's where I see I can't sit by and be quiet, not only because I'm a woman of color, but because I also recognize having that intersection with Christianity is an opportunity to, I don't know, change the narrative to yeah. push the envelope and to challenge the beliefs that some of my fellow Christians have about Muslims, about the Muslim faith. 
So I want to circle back to Christianity. Now, as a Muslim, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Moses. Unlike what people may think, we believe in all the prophets before Mm -hmm. our own prophet. So Jesus was an activist, right? Yes. The Bible and Quran state about how he advocated for the poor, the sick, the socially outcasted. Mm -hmm. And he was basically the embodiment of radical acceptance and compassion. But what I see happening in the last few decades, and I want to go back to what you just said, in some ways, Christianity, and that is true for a lot of religions. A lot of religions can be weaponized to dominate or control citizenry. Christianity has been used as a tool for judgment and casting shame. Oh, yes. Now, for you as a practicing Christian, how do you push back on that, that specific idea of judging others based on their faith or lack of faith. Oh, I push back so often that I've also been called a heretic or mm. <laughs> and had my own faith questioned by other Christians who huh. somehow look at the Bible and don't see Jesus the same way you just described Jesus as an activist, as one who embodied this radical, inclusive love. Somehow, somewhere, the interpretation and then the application of who Jesus is over time I feel like sometimes it becomes even smaller and smaller. And so I would agree with you on that. And I think where I have found myself is at the margins trying to push up against this understanding of a Jesus who alienated and isolated and judged those on the margins. Hmm. Um, And so... You know, I am a practicing Christian and I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But to be honest, my my husband and I, we have not been at a church, not because of COVID, but even prior to COVID, have not yeah. been a part of a church community as members for quite some time in part because of that pushing against uh, what we continue to see is that a variation or version of Christianity being used politically to shame, isolate, Mm. condemn people for who they are and for their beliefs. I feel like I know several, I know many Christians who over the years have kind of deconstructed our faith from, you know, God who's a white bearded man (laughs) (laughs) into understanding who Jesus is and finding that our churches don't believe that Jesus was an activist. Do you think we have moved past the need for institutionalized spirituality? I don't think so. I don't think so. And Hmm. I don't think that it's necessarily a negative thing. I do think that we are humans. And so we're just, you know, sometimes going to be awful and quite often abuse power. And so I think that the criticism against um, institutional religion and spiritual spaces is valid. But I also see such a deep need for that. 
Mm. You know, I, I think the past year and a half around COVID and people feeling very separated physically from one another and a deep desire in trying to create virtual spaces for people to gather still speaks of a need for some sort of institutionalized spaces that have agreed upon certain rules of engagement. And I don't think that all of those things are inherently bad. I do think that there's something of value that even my husband and I miss in having a regular place and space yeah. and community to worship with every Sunday. I mean, we tried virtual. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it's yeah. not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> Kathy, are you seeing younger generations moving away from institutionalized religion, though? It, that's a perception yes. that I get. Oh, absolutely. And I also think that for those of us older folks like myself who still hold on to a belief and hope and faith in institutionalized religious spaces, I also think that the blame falls on us and me, that, yeah. that I have not lived a life that is compelling enough that says, oh, those spaces are needed and valuable and necessary, and that somewhere along the line, the younger generation, and I look to my children who are... 19, 22, and 25, none of them are part of institutional religious spaces. And yet mm. I think they all would say they have a set of beliefs and they have friends who share those beliefs and they practice those beliefs in certain ways. None of them are a part of a church or a religious organization or institution. And I also think that I'm learning from them, right, yeah. in watching them and going, oh, well, there is value to that and to be able to imagine something that doesn't have the same types of rules of engagement um, that is far more fluid than I understood religion or faith or spirituality to be. What is something that you've learned from your kids that really resonated with you? Oh, gosh. They really live out and believe it doesn't matter what you say or have memorized from yeah. whatever faith, tradition, or scriptures. What you can spit out isn't what matters. Right. It is how you live consistently day in and day out. And, you know, they're my children, so they've grown up seeing me practice my religion. And they are the first ones to be able to point out my hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, I think, has been one of those hard but healing and important lessons is that the parent and the adult doesn't always know. Right. We, right? I may have information, but I don't always live that out. And so that is one of the most humbling and important lessons on the daily <laughs> that I learn from them. I love it. I love it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you probably already know by now, we talk a lot about mental health on this podcast. 
and the importance of taking the time to take care of yourself. In fact, we've dedicated an entire season to it. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether it's meditation or getting a massage. But let's be honest, ice cream can only go so far and sometimes what you really need is to connect with someone. On previous, I've been open about the fact that therapy has helped me a lot when it comes to managing my mental health. If you've been struggling with stress, anxiety, or if you just want to learn effective preventative tools, BetterHelp might be for you. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's convenient, affordable, and you can start with your therapist in under 48 hours of signing up. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about and take the leap. For immigrantly listeners, BetterHelp is giving 10%, yes, 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash immigrantly. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash immigrantly. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. So I want to pivot a little and talk about your experiences with depression and mental mm-hmm. health. Now, mm-hmm. you write about these experiences on your blog, um, A line that really struck me was when you described your depression as, quote, as alive and present as I am, unquote. What are your practices when dealing with these depressive states? I don't ignore them. And I do not try to uh, diminish that experience. Um, Hmm. I think... Growing up, there wasn't a lot of language around mental health and right. and in my family of origin or even in church, in the religious and faith spaces that I walked in, n- no language around that, even though there's so much in scripture. Yes. <laughs> and so for me, what I've learned is not to play it down and not pretend, oh, this is just me being sad or uh, this is going to pass. But my practice is to very much kind of name it for what it is, to describe it as often as I can, to be very open about it with my friends and family and strangers who read. Um, Because if I pretend it isn't what it is, that actually allows the depression to um, take hold deeper. Hmm. It doesn't give me the tools to acknowledge it is affecting my day-to-day life. It is affecting the way I sleep or the way I interact with my friends and my coworkers. And so that is one of the practices for me is I don't pretend it isn't a big deal. You know, that's such an important point because I've discovered how to navigate that space recently mm-hmm. and I talk about how my faith is important. It's very important in that respect, but so is my therapist. Are there any tools that you use for mindfulness? I do. And I love that you 
bring it up as mindfulness, which I think is practiced in all faith traditions. Hmm. Um, Even though growing up in the Christian faith, we did not call it mindfulness and people get really, I think still in the Christian world, get weirded out around meditation. Um, But for me, that is very much hand in hand with prayer. And a a prayerful life is not just reciting prayers that I've memorized, but that also helps. (laughs) I hear you. So I think that is part of my mindfulness practice is to have words, phrases, longer prayers that are all memorized that I tune back into during the course of the day, Um, trying to, you know, center myself when my anxiety starts to go out the roof and also slow myself down. You know, the Western world is not about slow. Everything is fast. (laughs) Everything's productive, right? We have to account for something every moment of the day. Tell me about it. I live in New York. It's Right? um, It's, oh my gosh. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, my daughter lives in Brooklyn and I just... Sometimes I just look at the things that she's doing and I'm like, I'm tired and I'm not <laughs> even there in the physical space. So I think for me, that practice of just slowing down and reminding myself that my value is not in what I produce has helped me in my mental health and in my relationships and quite frankly and ironically, in my productivity. So as I slow down, I'm able to be more present to the things that I'm supposed to do (laughs) as opposed to like trying to multitask and do five things poorly. (laughs) Yeah. So here's my question. How does one detach one's self from that work schedule when Many a times our worth, especially in Western societies, is measured on the basis of how successful we are. Now, success manifests itself in different ways, right? But mm-hmm. one measure that I can think of, especially here, is wealth. Yes. Or your earning potential. How does one detach from that? And, you know... I'm brutally engaged in it too. I mean, last night hmm. I bought myself a pair of earrings <laughs> <laughs> and kind of wrestled with the like, I deserve this, but you know, it's not really in the budget, but I deserve this. And Yeah, we um, can and, always make those excuses, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I, my ears are double pierced, so I need to, you know, I need double the set of earrings. Um <laughs> So I'm still a work in progress in that. And I also need to fully acknowledge, you know, my privilege in that. So I'm I'm married. My husband earns a great living. And so for the past, you know, two years, I have been able to say I don't need to have a full-time job with benefits. So right. that allows me that freedom to say, oh, you know, there's that level of detachment 
On the other hand, I have a college degree of which I am often reminded by my parents that I am not utilizing <laughs> to the fullest. <laughs> I love it. My dad does that oh, to me all the time. It's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> and Satya, I don't know how old you are. I'm 50 years old. I, you know, and to be reminded by my parents that I'm still not using I am forever a child <laughs> in their eyes and being reminded that I'm not using that privilege and the very thing that they have sacrificed so much for to then earn more money and be in the rat race that exhausted them. Yeah. So one of the things that has been hard for me as a parent is our daughter who is in Brooklyn, she majored in dance. And so uh -huh. even in that was a huge exercise of letting go of expectations, right? So it's one thing to let go of your own life expectations. But I realized as a parent, I was like, wait, dance? How the heck are you going to make a living? Like, what does that even mean? I don't understand. <laughs> um, and to kind of watch her navigate her creative world and then get a job that pays the bills mm. and allows her to live a life that provides but isn't necessarily the expectation the world has for all of us yeah. is helpful. And then for me, like I said, I have the privilege. I have a, a husband who is working and bringing in a very healthy paycheck but I also have to fight against the cultural and social norms. So I teach yoga. Um, that is how I spend a chunk of most of my days. And it's always funny to talk with people who are like, oh, so is that all you do? <laughs> right? And I, I have to fight against my ego saying, no, that's not all I do. And so, so that's the give and take of a daily life in that is um, how often am I going to recognize what my ego really wants to do yeah. and yeah. what my reality is. And in this stage of life, most of my friends who are stay-at-home moms have gone back into the workplace and I have done it backwards. <laughs> so I was working full-time while my kids were home. And circumstances were as such that I left what I was doing. And now my kids are all gone and I'm at home. And so I'm, I'm playing around and fighting my ego constantly of like, what am I doing? <laughs> but you're following your passion, right? Yes, yes. And that is so, so, so important. Talking about yoga, Kathy, yeah. now we've talked about yoga on our podcast a few times and We've also talked about yoga's turbulent representation, especially mm -hmm. with white people appropriating it. Yes. Um, you're not white or brown. Have you ever thought about this complex space and your role in it? Yes. Yes, I have. I have. Um, and I hmm. thought about it even as I went into deciding about teacher training and what I was thinking behind that. So when I was certified and went, decided to um, go through teacher training, even that process was like, what is this? Getting certified and, you know, getting a stamp of approval on a practice that mm. is 
thousands of years old that is beyond kind of this institutionalized understanding of 200 hours. And so I wrestled with that even as I entered into the space and continued to wrestle with it because like you said, I'm neither white nor brown and the wellness space, the yoga space is predominantly white still. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I wrestle with what even my body and my presence as a teacher or as a student represents in a space. And some ways I do that is to ask for feedback from women, primarily women who have been students in classes that I have led or have been Mm. in class with me. Uh, So one of the things that has evolved over COVID because of the the racial understanding and some have said the uprising of last summer around George Floyd's murder Mm. and then kind of the onslaught and ongoing police brutality against black and brown humans, human beings, Mm. um, I had created and Uh, started a space for Black, Indigenous, and other women of color to practice yoga virtually. Hmm. Simply as a space, knowing that one, COVID, you couldn't go. And two, that so many of even the virtual spaces were white and predominantly white. And so this has been going on now for more than a year. And on any given day, there's five to 30 women who join in. And what I am learning in that space is also what you're saying is navigating the fact that I am neither white nor black or brown. And so how can Mm. I hold this space knowing that I'm still learning from indigenous women what it means to grieve for the more than 200 children who were killed um, Mm. simply because they're indigenous and a school system that was created to, you know, essentially beat out their indigenous identity. What does that mean to hold space for them? And what does it mean to hold space for black and brown women in a practice that does not historically here in the U.S. acknowledge their humanity? What does it mean to lead yoga for South Asian women who come weekly, who's you know, this is more connected to their culture, but because of the fact that they're here in the West or because they grew up in a Christian home and their families rejected yoga, um, what Mm. does it mean to hold space? So I'm still learning what that means. But what that has meant for me is inviting the women who come into that virtual space for us to all acknowledge whose land we are on. And that's so important, Kathy, Mm -hmm. because I feel like it is crucial to honor originators of certain traditions and practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with adopting those traditions, but what bothers me is when people appropriate them and reinvent them in ways where they are not honoring um, the originators, and that is so important. I agree with you. I agree with you. So let's talk about your marriage. Uh, You mentioned (laughs) your husband a few times and I loved your blog post titled (laughs) 28 Things I Learned During 28 Years of Marriage. It was so funny yet so real. Like you talk about everything from (laughs) 
finding time for sex to feeling complete outside of the marriage, which is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and to communicating honestly about your needs. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the formula for a successful marriage? <laughs> um, mm, patience and long suffering. <laughs> <laughs> That has been the key for us, that we are both patient with one another. After 28 years, we still learn where we're not patient with one another. And I know this sounds awful, but it is. There is a long suffering that you have to learn in marriage that, you know, rom-coms are not going to teach us. And I certainly didn't learn about what marriage requires from like the short premarital counseling that he and I did (laughs) before we got married. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we've been married 28 years and there are things where we look back and go, yeah, the only way we got out of that period was that we were willing to suffer (laughs) with one Mm. another, that we were willing to suffer on behalf of the other person or with the other person or because of the other person. Ah. And I don't think that's something I really thought about when we got married 28 years ago. It was yeah. more about like, oh, love and all the warm feelings. <laughs> so tell me about patience because I don't have patience. I don't either. But also as an institution, Going back to how relevant certain institutions are, how relevant is marriage as an institution? Were you in my kitchen a week and a half ago? Because we literally had this conversation with the friend of one of my daughter's childhood friends um, who asked us about this. So first, the patience part. I'm still learning. I'm a very impatient person. Um, I also know that the biggest critic of myself is myself, and that tends to spill out into other people. So Hmm. um, when I am impatient with others, it usually for me is that I'm self-condemning myself for not doing something better. And how I'm still learning is that mindfulness part is like this morning coming down and the kitchen is a disaster. (laughs) And instead of like being loud and aggressively putting things away to just literally take a moment and be like, okay, why is this bothering me so much? What do I think this says about me that my kitchen is messy? What does it not really say? (laughs) I wish I could. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it does require post-it notes. So I have been known to like leave notes for myself, particularly on my desk with those messages of like, you know, a messy kitchen does not mean you are a horrible person. (laughs) um, (laughs) So that's how I manage my impatience is that I have, I force myself because I also remember what I do when I'm impatient and it's never good. Mm. It's, it's Mm. never good. And then you know, the institution of marriage is a great question. I think it benefits men <laughs> in a yeah. heterosexual marriage. It benefits men. I read a study somewhere that I can't quite cite, but, you know, married heterosexual men are healthier 
wealthier, live longer, better lives, quality <laughs> of life is better for them. Um, and it doesn't yeah. improve the life of their female spouse in the same way. That's um, interesting. I know. I know. I'll have to dig that up. But I'm curious to know if like if younger generations, again, would even be interested in marrying. I have a 15 year old and I think she questions everything from marriage to having kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was surprised that my 25-year-old is interested in marriage, but she's huh. not interested in it in this, with the same rush or panic as I did. So she's 25. At her age, I was already married and had given birth to her. Huh. And she's not in a rush. She doesn't feel like she has a timeline that marriage has to happen within a certain timeline. My boys, I think they talk and joke about it, but they also fully recognize that they can barely take care of themselves. So <laughs> um, the reality is different for them. And they have often joked how marriage seems easier for their dad than it does for me as their mom. Yeah. You know, for me, when I look at how life expectancy has increased mm -hmm. and people are living longer, mm -hmm. it does make sense to delay marriage, right? <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Pakistan, so the idea was that you have to get married before 25, otherwise it's downhill from there. Right. Which is not true. <laughs> correct. Absolutely correct. I hope my kids take time to make that decision. Yes, yes. And I, I think I feel it much more for my daughter than I do for my sons. My husband is older. And so I think there is that kind of like, what was his life experience before he got married versus mine? I was 22 when I got married. And, and so I want that deeply for my daughter yeah. to have that experience of, you know, traveling and she has a roommate, her college best friend. And those are the things that I didn't do. Right. Uh, because I got so young, you know, I got married so young. And so I love that. I love that she's in Brooklyn, living her best life, doing the things that she does because she's a single woman. Absolutely. So in the end, um, I ask my guests to define America in a word or a sentence. Mm -hmm. But I want to tweak it a little. Yeah. In terms of one's religious identity, how do you see America? Oh, wow. And I would, I would tweak your question even more in that I would hmm. say, like, when I think of America, I think specifically the United States versus, like, right, North right. America. In terms of that intersection between my Christian faith and the U.S., I would say it's the lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think of the United States as the fake promised land. I like that. I like that. Thank you so much, Kathy. This was so good. I know that you have a book and we could do another podcast on it. Just a quick shout out. Where can people find your book? Sure. It's called Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And it's written through my lens as a Korean-American Christian woman challenging other Christians or other readers in general to consider why they stay quiet when um, in situations 
of awkward jokes, racist jokes, sexist jokes, or comments that happen at the kitchen table with family members and think about why they need to say something and how they might go about doing that and changing their practices. Um, and you can find that where, you know, in the big the big evil company that starts with the capital letter A, or as I've encouraged many of my friends, you know, call your local bookstore. They'd be happy to order it and have it waiting for you. Thank you, Kathy. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. If you have any questions for our upcoming guests, DM us. We want to know what you think and what you want to ask the guests. We have already shared who's coming on this season. So yeah, just DM us. Check out our website. Think about subscribing to our Patreon and take care.